and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and we have a super special episode today. I think it's going to be one that a lot of people want to listen to. I have Dr. Wiggy here with me, and we're really excited to welcome today Michael Phillips to the podcast. Michael spent this summer interning at Robin Hood Integrative Health with Wiggy and the other providers there helped out in the lab and the store. And I know he was a huge help and hopefully he learned a lot too. And we also found out that Michael is an excellent researcher. And today we are going to talk some um, about some of, not all of, the findings that Michael has supplied to us um, doing some really deep research into the vaccines. So welcome, Michael. How are you? Good. Yeah. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. We're so glad that you're here with us and we are excited to dive in. Um, I don't know. Do we need any more introduction, Wiggy? Well, I can introduce him myself too because okay. I spent some, some time with him and I want to champion him as well because I, he did a great job uh, with this research. And so when Michael, uh, you know, came and spent the time with us in the summer, you know, um, sometimes you have some reservations about who's going to who's going to be there. And uh, he's really been just such a such a gift to have there. Uh, really passionate about medicine, passionate about helping people, about health. And uh, he actually has what it takes to make it in medicine. So I just want to make sure that he hears that because he is he's the real deal. And he's done a great job putting together uh, this research that we uh, we wanted to to compile, because that's one thing we actually do with all of our interns that, that spend a summer with us is that we want them to research something and do it really as thoroughly and as as completely as possible. And of course, with uh, everything going on, we wanted to really dive deep into some of these, some of the research uh, on the vaccines. And uh, and Michael did a great job, and he came up with a bunch of different findings that I think are all really important. Uh, but I wanted to focus on a couple of the findings uh, because I think they're a little bit more uh, relevant just for the for the general population. So, um, so yeah, there's a couple of things that I wanted to focus on, and I'll kind of give you the kind of top ones that I'm looking at. Uh, one, I want to talk about some of the vaccine development and some of the research uh, that Pfizer uh, developed. And then I wanted to talk about this concept, and there's this video going around uh, by this doctor in Indiana talking about this, uh, this process called antibody-dependent enhancement. And uh, there's been a lot of kind of press around that, so I want to talk, you dive into that a little bit more. And then last, I want to kind of jump into the concept of molecular mimicry and the possibility of uh, the vaccine and the spike proteins potentially having some uh, overlap with some of the tissues in, in the body. So um, I guess we can kind of just jump in with the with the specific. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about number one, vaccine yeah. development. So, yeah, Michael, so uh, if you can just kind of give us a little bit of a summary for what you found with kind of the vaccine development and how vaccines are normally developed and uh, kind of how, how this one, uh, how these were, were developed. Yeah, for sure. So vaccines, you fall into three categories. There are simple vaccines, complex vaccines, and then unprecedented vaccines. Um, an unprecedented vaccine is a vaccine against a disease, which there's never been a vaccine before. So that includes SARS-CoV-2. Um, and according to a study done by the Gates Foundation in 2018, those vaccines usually take 12 and a half years to develop. And then each vaccine has a 2% chance to go through all phase one, phase two, phase three, and then clinical trials. 
Um, so it's very hard to get an unprecedented vaccine. That's why you don't see like Ebola vaccines or any of those very difficult viruses to conquer because they're very hard to pass through. Um, but for SARS-CoV-2, in under two years, we had three vaccines that went through that whole process, which that's a, that's a very low chance. That's two to the third power of that happening. Um, right. So that's, that was the first sort of yeah, and I'll, alarming, but yeah. Yeah, I'll hop in on that too. So, you know, one common thing that I hear uh, that's, that's typically used as a defense of the vaccines is that, oh, well, they've been working on these vaccines for years. You know, this is not really just a, a new, you know, new vaccine. Uh, this has just kind of all been in the, in the works forever. And so now they just finally come to market. Um, and that's kind of a misleading statement because I think all vaccines generally are being worked on for years before they even get to the research phase. And if you look at some of the research on uh, the mRNA vaccines, yes, they have been working on it for years, uh, just like they've been working on a coronavirus, other coronavirus vaccines, they've been working on those for years and they've never been able to bring one to market. So the fact that they've never been able to bring an mRNA vaccine or a coronavirus vaccine to market, and then they were able to, to do three in a short period of time, that should give you some hesitation because like I said, this is, this is yes, it's unprecedented, and yes, it was pushed through because it, was, it, was, it needed to be pushed through. <clears throat> but that means that there is a lot that's still unknown about these, these vaccines. So there should be a little bit of hesitation with that. So just to kind of summarize, with the vaccine development, you know, there's an estimated about a 2% chance for a vaccine to make it through all the clinical trials and actually make it to market. And the fact that we had three come through so fast, and it usually takes about 12 and a half years, not just, not just six months or not just in a short period of time. So that, that is something that, that I think is, is valid, uh, valid there. Um, the next one I wanted to, to talk about, uh, Michael, was the, some of the data from Pfizer that um, when you really dig into it pretty deep, there appears to be some, I wouldn't necessarily say manipulation of the data, but I think if you, if you look at it from, from the surface, potentially it could be, uh, a little bit of manipulation. Kind of give us your your findings on the the Pfizer data and how potentially maybe a little bit misleading. Oh, are you there, Michael? Michael. Oh, oh. there he is. Cool. Okay. Yeah. We're, Sorry, we're my good. phone my phone cut out. So the data Dr. Wiggy's talking about is. Um, in Pfizer's phase three study, there's a, a column called suspected COVID-19 cases from the vaccinated group and the placebo group, and they excluded them. And there was a total of 3,410 suspected COVID cases. Um, it's almost 50-50 in the vaccinated group and the placebo group. So there's 1,594 in the vaccinated group, and there's 1,816 in the placebo group. So if those were all true the relative reduction that you would get from the vaccine would only be 19% instead of the 95% that's put out in the study. Now, we don't know, like Dr. Wiggy said, if it's manipulated or if they just, if something really did happen, but they also don't include why they did it, which is mm. another reason to be hesitant because that's a, that's a very large amount of people in a study with only 40,000 people in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the next finding I found when I went through the phase three trial was and I quote, important protocol de deviations on or prior to seven days after dose two. Now, there was a total of only 371 
participants excluded, but 311 were from the vaccinated group and only 60 were from the placebo group. Mm. Now, there is absolutely no comment on why they did this, and they don't give any explanation explanation as to what it means as well. Um, so we're just left in the gray as to whatever it means. Right. And, and I think that's where we run into some issues with, you know, following the science mm -hmm. is that, you know, and this is if you're really going to think critically for, for anything, um, especially when it comes to, to medicine uh, and, and science, is that you have to look at if there's if there's any potential bias, uh, if there's any potential um, skewing of the data, because, you know, the truth is, unfortunately, with with all research and and I hate that it's come to this, but really for, for any research, you can kind of manipulate the data and in, include, exclude different exclusion criteria to massage the data to get the outcome that you want. And so it's, it's really, you have to be very careful and really diligent when you're, when you're quoting uh, research or when you're quoting uh, statistics to really see if there's any potential weaknesses in that data. So again, we don't we don't want to necessarily say that this this data has been manipulated, but we can't also ignore the fact that data is manipulated all the time, and especially data from uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, from really any any sort of uh, medications. The, the data can be manipulated, and so we just have to be careful when we're making you know big claims about effectiveness, especially if there's some un unknown uh, questions that, that haven't been answered. So again, it's, this is not saying that, again, this is that this means that it's completely false and we have to throw out all the data. It just means we should be we should be questioning things and not just necessarily relying on the data on, on the surface. So, yeah, that's that's good. That's really um, I think that's important information. And it's just important for anybody, again, that's that's trying to get to the truth. is just look at look at the data, see if there's anything that's missing and then trying to figure out, you know, why and what would be what the, would their motivation be behind it? All right, Michael. So let's go on to, to the next finding, and this one I think is 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 a little confusing. And so, do your best to try to explain this in a in layman's terms the best you can. Uh, and I, I was alluding to this um, in our introduction about this uh, the doctor that was talking about antibody dependent enhancement. This was a doctor that spoke in, in Indiana, uh, I believe, at the school board or the city council or something. There's the school board. School board, yeah. And he's talking about how we're seeing- If you haven't seen that video, you may not because it's basically been taken off of all platforms. Yeah, it's already <laughs> been, you know, fact-checked, which means it's probably true. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that video is actually really good. And he, he's another functional or integrated medicine doctor in Indiana that really has a pretty good understanding uh, for what's happening. Uh, but he's claiming that, um, that we're seeing a large spike in cases here in the summer because of this process called antibody dependent enhancement. And like I said, it's a little bit of a different, difficult concept to, to wrap your head around, but Michael, can you kind of give us a, a summary for what, what you think that means and, and how that relates to what's happening? Yeah, for sure. So antibody dependent enhancement is pretty much the enhancement of a virus that's going through the population due to antibodies that are, that are present to the virus. But these antibodies aren't neutralizing. So when it comes to, for instance, the vaccinated people for COVID, when you see the Delta variant, the vaccine that was made was not made for the Delta variant specifically. It could have been the alpha, it could have been the beta. I have not been able to figure out which variant they use to make the vaccines. But because these vaccines 
have a high affinity, which means that they're site specific to the spike protein, to the specific strand, that the base pairings have to, the, you know, the RNA base pairings have to match up perfectly with the spike protein to be able to neutralize the virus. Mm-hmm. So when you have a new variant, you can have new base pairings or different letters and different codes, and those codes might not match. And when that happens, the antibodies from the vaccine do not bind completely to the virus. And then unfortunately, your body thinks you've amounted an immune response to the virus. So your body thinks you're taking care of it, but you're really not because you're not neutralizing the virus. And the virus on the other hand knows it's being attacked, but it knows it's not being killed. And like anything you learn through biology, everyone tries to survive and the viruses try to figure out how to survive. So you pressure them to mutate faster and faster to become mm. more virulent and more deadly due to the antibodies that bind that don't neutralize them. So that's why the name is antibody dependent enhancement because the enhancement of the virus is dependent on the antibodies. That's good. That's a good description. Emily, do you, did you feel like you understood? Cause this, this is a good layman. Uh, yes. I, I thought you did a great job, Michael. And, and I'll say, I was actually looking at some articles. I heard this from a friend um, that there was some mainstream media articles about the lambda variant variant that is in south africa i believe right now correct um or maybe it was south america but it's somewhere south (laughs) but basically saying that this is i mean they they were admitting that this is the thing with the lambda variant that the that the vaccines are not neutralizing the um antibodies or the that are not neutralizing the virus i should say um and and whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But even the mainstream media is talking about that. Yet the narrative that we're seeing here is different and saying, oh, no, no, the, the virus spread now and these new variant is because of the unvaccinated people. Mm. Right. That's what we're hearing. Well, this science would tell us that that's not true. That perhaps if we weren't vaccinating a large part of the population and more people achieved natural immunity, that this virus wouldn't be mutating as fast and as deadly as it perhaps mm-hmm. possibly could. Am I correct in that assessment yeah. with this science? Yeah, so I think that that's, that's a good summary of kind of what, what could be happening. Now, again, we, we don't know for sure if that is what's happening or not. So this is this is still kind of theoretical at this point. But the the question that it really should bring up is that is that what's what is causing this these variants? And is is also that why the variants are more contagious? Uh, not necessarily more uh, deadly at this point, not that we've seen maybe the uh, lambda, but it doesn't appear the delta appears to be more more deadly, but it does appear to be more contagious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that would kind of make you think that if this antibody dependent enhancement is happening and the virus is learning to evade you know the immune system that it would have a higher chance of being contagious or having a higher chance of, of spreading so so it's possible that this is happening you know the other, the other point that was brought up by the uh, physician in indiana was that that the the big spike that's happening right now does seem a little counter intuitive because the number of people vaccinated continues to go up. Um, we're also in the summer, which is when typically respiratory viruses are at their lowest point. 
yet we are seeing a big spike in coronavirus cases, primarily with, with Delta. So that could potentially explain why we're seeing this spike, because the virus has mutated enough to evade the vaccine response. And that's why we're getting this, this increase in, in the numbers. Uh, the other thing that I think is important to understand here is that, yes, and I'll, and Lee mentioned this uh, a minute ago, is that, you know, the, the big narrative now is that this is a, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? That's the, that's the biggest narrative. And, and I believe that that's, that is a bit of a myth. Uh, so people are throwing that around as, as truth. Uh, this is, this is only in uh, unvaccinated people. And, and they're basically coming to that conclusion based on, I mean, I wouldn't say out of thin air, but they're making a conclusion based on data that they're not even recording mm -hmm. at this point. So in America and um, in, in most states, the recording of people that are getting COVID and if they have fully vaccination, fully vaccinated status or not, is not really happening. Right. So we're not really getting good data on the number of cases you know, in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. So to make claims based on data that is is shaky at best and I said somewhat non-existent uh, is is also I think I think is a bit misleading because you you, don't, you can only make those statements when you have good reliable recording data. Uh, and I would point to another country for the best data and the most reliable data for that, and that that country is is Israel. So just to give you our, you know, our listeners kind of a, a, a better uh, example for the statistics here is that Israel has a very high percentage of adults that are vaccinated. Uh, it's estimated that 80% plus of adults in Israel are vaccinated, yet they are seeing big spikes in the coronavirus cases, not necessarily hospitalizations, but big spike in the cases. And of those cases, over 50% of those cases are in the fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So we cannot say that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This is a pandemic of both. And so, so we are seeing that, that this, there's this breakthrough cases and it's a higher percentage than what's being, people are being led to believe. You know, some people are saying it's only one to 2%, but it's, it's, a, it's a higher percentage of those that have been vaccinated that are, that are getting this. Again, is this because of the antibody dependent enhancement? I don't know. But I think that it, it does make you question. And so 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 that we are seeing that the vaccine doesn't appear to be as effective, not nearly as effective for for the Delta variant. Right. And so it's an important that's important uh, point and a fact to, to understand is that look at the data from the countries that are actually recording the data on a consistent basis. Right. That's important. Well, and, and back to the the hospitalization piece, too. You know, I keep reading that 96% of hospitalizations or something around there are unvaccinated people. But from what I understand, unless something's changed in the last very short period of time, the CDC stopped tracking breakthrough cases in May. So I would love to understand where is this data coming from that's telling us that 96% of people who are hospitalized are unvaccinated when we stop tracking those numbers in May. So I don't know, Michael, if you've seen anything about that. If you do, please chime in, because that's something that's really perplexing to me, that that's what we're seeing in all these headlines. But meanwhile, I don't see anything that shows us that we're yeah, actually data. tracking that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, have you seen anything, Michael, or not? I said I know you probably have uh, not really done any additional research from uh, <laughs> from before. Yeah, I haven't seen anything on that, but I will comment on when I was doing my research. It was very hard this summer to find raw data, like just mm. numbers from the CDC. If anyone's tried to look like stratified data from COVID cases, it's it's very hard to figure out like mm. what is the true numbers because if you talk to anybody in hospitals, insurance will pay for anything in a hospital if COVID is the cause. The government will give them money for it. So hospitals have a really strong incentive to label everything as COVID. So it's extremely difficult to get clear data on what the real COVID numbers mm -hmm. are. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's, that's good. Sick. Yeah, I said I think the best data that I've seen uh, again that's consistent is, is out of Israel. And, and I'll talk briefly and we move on about the hospitalizations because I believe that uh, when I last checked the hospitalizations uh, in Israel, I believe a, about forty percent of the people hospitalized are fully vaccinated. So I said, again, this is not this is not uh, just those that are unvaccinated that are being hospitalized. Mm -hmm. So that so that data is pretty good. It's, it seems to be reliable. Uh, now, one thing I will say, because I don't want this to podcast to be completely anti, you know, seem anti-vaccine. Mm -hmm. all, all I want this to be is for people to start thinking right. and to and to ask questions, uh, because, you know, also to to the potential benefit of the vaccine. I think this is this is also important that this is this is not completely just risk there are some potential benefits it does appear out of the is uh, israeli data that uh, those that are vaccinated even if they're hospitalized they are having a lower death rate mm -hmm. so it does appear to protect the most vulnerable from death which is what i've been saying really from from all along is that if you are really high risk mm -hmm. if you have a high mortality you know percentage from the virus is that it may make sense to get the vaccine and so those that are older, those that have uh, comorbidities that increase your mortality, like uh, diabetes, especially uncontrolled, uh, morbid obesity, um, again, age, those people, I think, should consider the vaccine. And, and I've always I've said that this should be a personal decision. And so, again, this is not completely against it. Mm -hmm. There is data that's, that suggests that this does protect the most vulnerable. And I think the most vulnerable, I probably would say, it would make sense to get the vaccine unless you have a physician that's willing to treat early, like with ivermectin. Mm -hmm. But that's a different that's a different discussion. But again, this so this is not completely uh, all negative. It's just saying that there are some possibilities here. And so people that are really low risk, people that are younger, that don't have any comorbidities, that have a ninety nine point nine nine percent survival rate. Does it make sense for them to be forced to inject something? that there are some potential complications. And so, again, this is where this needs to be an individual approach, a personal approach, discuss with your physician and figure out what, what works best for you and what you feel most comfortable doing. I have patients that are vaccinated, I have patients that aren't, you know, and, I, and I've had discussions both ways with, with, uh, with people. So that's, again, this is an important part and that's where the healthy discourse comes in is that we need to be talking. Uh, because one of those one of the last last things we'll talk about here, Michael, and then we'll and then we'll wrap it up here. But I do want to do want to touch on, you know, the, this potential complication of risk that we don't really see and we won't know the data on it probably for years to come. And because, again, it hasn't the vaccine hasn't been around enough for us to know what sort of potential, potential long term complications that there may be. And one of those concerns that I've had, which I think we're seeing that there's some research behind this, the concern is 
this concept of molecular mimicry um, or where the the spike protein has similar characteristics to human tissue and the concept that that could potentially trigger like a autoimmune process. So when you're finding six, you call it pathogenic priming and extensive sequence homology with endogenous human proteins. <laughs> and I'll just call it, I'll just call it molecular mimicry. That's a, a little bit easier uh, to understand. But yeah, give your give us your thoughts on on that finding. Yeah. So where I found this, there was there was a researcher in 2020 who pretty much just mapped out the genome of SARS-CoV-2 and then the proteins that are produced from the mRNA code. Um, the researcher found that 28 of the 29 antigenic regions, that just means producing an immune response, had homology or similarities with human proteins that are also re autoreactogenic. So if those mm -hmm. COVID proteins went into the tissue, which we know now that they do, according to mm -hmm. Pfizer's toxicity study, that the body's own immune system would start reacting against those proteins in the body's tissues. Yep. Um, so if you can, if you go online, you look up Pfizer's toxicity study for the proteins, you'll see where they go. We see that it goes to the ovaries, it goes to the spleen, it goes to the large intestine, and it goes into the testicles. But we only know that up to 48 hours. And that's probably why Dr. Wiggy was saying we're not really sure what's going to happen because we, we seriously don't know. But yeah. that's where a lot of problems can occur because uh, these proteins, they have very similar codes to the human human proteins found in the immune system, in the ovaries, in the spleen, in the large intestine, but the body will know that's a foreign object and it will attack it. And then mm -hmm. that pretty much just means autoimmune issues. Your body's just going to attack itself. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, I think, you know, the autoimmune piece, I think is somewhat also um, confusing for people. Uh, and this is where I have to do some educating for, for my patients because a lot of them come uh, to our practice that have autoimmune disease. And the biggest question that they ask is, well, why? You know, why, why do I have Hashimoto's? Why do I have rheumatoid arthritis? Why do I have MS? And, you know, what, what they get uh, kind of from the traditional world is, well, we don't know. We, we don't know, but here's, here's a medication for you to try to shut down your immune system. Hopefully your symptoms don't get worse. Uh, in my opinion, which I think that there's plenty of evidence to support this, is that autoimmune disease is triggered by something. Uh, and, and the concept that um, that I mentioned is called molecular mimicry is where there's a piece of something that shouldn't be there, whether that's a virus or a mold toxin or uh, a different infection that has a similar looking piece as our human tissue. And that triggers an immune response, not only to the pathogen that shouldn't be there, but also to the to the human tissue. And that's what again, that's what's called kind of in an integrative field called molecular mimicry. And I believe that that's valid because we've seen that you're, we are able, and not getting 100%, but in the practice, we're able to reverse autoimmune disease. And so we have people that come to us with Hashimoto's levels that are off the charts. We identify what the underlying uh, pathogen or irritant or antigen is, and we remove that, then their antibodies go away. And so we see that, that 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 process potentially happens. And so the concern here, and this this has kind of been one of my biggest concerns again all along with the vaccine, is that we know that this um, spike protein, that the, the SARS virus, uh, has these autogenic or antigenic regions that look very similar 
to other pieces of tissue in the body. And so if our body's amounting uh, immune response, specifically the antibody response to those antigens, then it's theoretically possible it's also developing an antibody response to human tissue. And so that's what we're going to, I think we're going to have to keep an eye on is we don't, we don't know if this is going to be a risk or not. This may not be anything, you know, again, Michael mentioned they only tested the spike protein deposition in the tissues up to 48 hours. But uh, I also looked at that data and uh, Michael did a good job kind of uh, looking at the uh, rate of rise or if it was increasing or decreasing at 48 hours. And a lot of these tissues that had the highest concentration, the concentration was increasing at 48 hours, not decreasing. So, yeah, we don't know what that what it's going to look like, you know, two weeks from now or or two months from now. But is it possible that the spike protein stays in the tissue for a long time and it also triggers this kind of autoimmune response? I think it's possible. And so it's just something that people should begin should be thinking about. Is this is this happening? And it's something if you're in the medical field, you need to be looking out for, uh, you know, uh, for autoimmune disease and see if that if those cases are going to go up. But again, we're not going to we're not going to know that. We're not going to know that for months, uh, maybe years right. to see if the rate of autoimmune disease is increasing. I think it'd be really interesting a couple of years from now. Look at the percentage of patients, percentage of people with autoimmune disease. See if it's gone up. Mm-hmm. If it has, you know, we can't say definitively this from this. Right. But it's possible. Right. And that's one thing that I think is just so important for all of us to consider and think about is that when, when we're fed these narratives or we're told or we're coerced and we're hearing, you know, I don't understand why not everybody, people are holding out on the vaccine. I mean, we're hearing this from medical providers. We're hearing this from so many people. I read an article this morning about a doctor that is just so upset about all the people that aren't getting the vaccine that he just doesn't even feel like treating them anymore. <laughs> and so we're hearing these kinds of things. And the truth is these claims that the vaccines are so safe and they're a hundred percent fill in the blank. And, you know, the only people that aren't willing to get them are, you know, uneducated and this and that and the other and all these derogatory terms fill in the blank. And it's simply not true that those that are questioning things and don't feel like we have enough data and we don't know all of these things and arguably my biggest concern, and I am not a physician, but from so much of what we're seeing and from what we just talked about, I think that fertility is a huge risk, especially for our younger populations. And the truth is we just do not know. But meanwhile, we're forcing um, everybody that works in a huge hospital system and everyone on every college campus, all of these people that are not yet at reproductive age or maybe are right in the middle of that to get a vaccine and saying that if they question that piece of it, that they must be crazy or misinformed. And I just think that that is very misleading. I think it's cruel, honestly, that these powers that be are trying to create these labels for anyone that has these hesitancies. And they're really good, important questions to ask. And I just want to encourage, I've had hundreds of people reach out to me over the past few weeks asking, what can I do? Or I just don't feel comfortable with this. Or I've read these things and I just, it just doesn't feel right for me. You know what? It's your body and it's your family and they're your kids if you have children. And 
while it might be very unpopular right now to stand your ground, I just want to encourage everyone to keep asking the questions, keep looking to see what is the CDC actually telling us? Like Michael said, it's very hard to figure that out. And so I'll get off of my soapbox, but I just want to continue to encourage people to stand strong and to, you know, not be, not be, you know, just, I think it's important to not just do things for no reason, but on the other hand, to know that your privacy and your freedom in this situation is incredibly important. And if enough people stand strong and firm and hold out, then I think that asking these questions is really important. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Michael, any, any last thoughts? Uh, no, I, I have, I do have one comment on the, um, the pregnancy thing. So your partner and I were reading, Dr. Lentel, and we're reading a study the day I was leaving. I don't remember if it was the British Medical Journal or the New England Journal of Medicine. Either the either way is one of those two big ones. And in Pfizer or Moderna's own study, they said they needed to do more studies on women and their first two trimesters that get the vaccine because the study that everyone quotes that it's safe for pregnancy, it only studies women in their third trimester. It says in the study in itself, we don't have enough data on trimester one and trimester two to see if the vaccine is safe and no, more work needs to be done. Mm. Um, so if I recommend people, if, if you feel confident in reading studies and you understand the vocabulary that they use, because a lot of times it can be alphabet soup, just see what's really being said. Because a lot of times, and I, I'm guilty of this as well, you will read just the abstract and the conclusion and then that's yeah. that. But yeah. the real information's and where all the gibberish is, where all the parentheses and the number and everything is, and that'll tell you what is really going on. Right. That's no, good. That's good. That's good work. And I, and I, I, good. It's really well done, well researched, and uh, well written. So I said, good, good work on this. I'll, I'll kind of give my kind of parting thoughts here too. Um, so I think the biggest thing is that the, the situation that we're in now is really turning into, there's only right or wrong. There's only, there's only black and white with this. And that's why there's some, some major companies and med and organizations that are saying everybody has to do the vaccine. You know, this is, this is mandated. Now we're saying that everyone has to do it because like I said, it's, there's only, it's only beneficial. And I think that that is a short-sighted view to say that this is a black and white issue because it's not. Just like anything else in medicine, there is gray area all the way in between right and wrong, yes and no, there's gray area. And this is where we need to be looking in the gray area and having discussions with patients to try and figure out, you know, what is the right answer for them. I still believe, and this is based on all the research that we've looked at up to this point, based on all the discussions with my patients and all the outcomes that we've seen from mm -hmm. treating patients, is that this is still a personal decision. This is an individual decision between you and your doctor, and you need to figure out and discuss the risk and the benefit and figure out what works best or what is, what is most logical for you and, and for your family. I still stand by that those people that are younger that have a lower risk of mortality, and we have the mortality data now. We know the percentage of, of death from people that are low risk, and it's very, very low. Mm -hmm. You know, most people, we're talking about a 99.9% .9 survival rate. So it's a very low mortality rate from this, and especially when you add in 
treating with ivermectin, which uh, which is a, a huge uh, importance as well, that reduces the mortality another, I think it's 60 to 70 percent. So there, there are other options here. So people that are low risk, that are young, that are healthy, that don't have a lot of comorbidities, you know, you probably don't need the vaccine. I mean, just from a just from a overall mortality standpoint, you don't. And this is probably where we should have another discussion too about natural immunity. Natural immunity is better. Mm-hmm. We know that now. Natural immunity is better than vaccinated immunity. We have they have better outcomes. They have less hospitalizations. They have less deaths than those that are vaccinated. We, we, we know have, that. We did talk about that some in our last podcast, which was on the T cell testing. Right. And then I I don't want to forget to mention this too. Um, we did do a whole episode on autoimmune disease. So oh, if right. you've heard this and you're like, wow, I want to understand that more, please go back and listen to that one. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. that's good. So yeah, because I'm, I'm rambling here, but <laughs> you're not. Really but I do think that so for younger people, healthier people, the risk is still very low. I do think that the, the evidence for the vaccines now, it does appear to be protective for those that are at high risk. So those that are, like I said, older, um, greater than 65, 70, you know, those are older, those that have comorbidities, I'm still leaning more towards for them getting the vaccine. And so I think for them, it makes more sense because they are the highest risk. They have the highest mortality rate. And it does appear that the vaccine helps with that. So I, I think that those should be the ones that should be uh, considering it. Uh, but to do it for everybody, like especially college students, and now they're, they're I think, down to eight years old, they're saying they can get vaccinated at 12. That is, I think that's just, that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So so have a discussion, you know, with your doctor. Look at this from both sides, you know, and, and that's why I have to catch myself sometimes, is that this is not only bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some good data coming out about how effective this may be for reducing uh, mortality, reducing right. death count for those that are highest risk. So look at it from both from both angles, make an informed decision. But like Emily was saying, is that this is still your body. Mm-hmm. This is your choice. No one should uh, should force you to do anything. And that's really what informed consent means. Informed consent means you're aware of the risks, you're aware of the benefits and you choose to do it. Right. Being coerced into doing it is not informed consent. Right. And I think one last point, something I know we talked about with family last week, and and this is something I don't think people fully understand is I think we need to consider these vaccines as more like therapeutics. So as you mentioned, and I think it's important to understand, the vaccine does not prevent you from getting COVID, Mm -hmm. even 95% of the time, right? Or whatever. It doesn't prevent you from getting the disease or the sickness, but it, but instead, just like any other therapeutic, it generally seems to help reduce Mm -hmm. symptoms, especially those who are our most vulnerable. And that's an important differentiation point because I don't think that the big picture narrative that we're hearing talks about that. I think most people think that if they get the vaccine, they're never going to get COVID. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's not true. So I just wanted to point that out as well. A lot of nuances here. Yes. We're doing our best to cover them all. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, thank you again so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed reading through your research. We're trying to figure out a way to get it online so that we can uh, share it with everybody because I know I'm going to get a bunch of messages asking me for a link to your research. So we're going to work on that. And when I have it, I will um, share it with others as well. But thank you so much. Best of luck to you during this year at school and 
we can't wait for you to come back to Robin Hood soon. Yeah, thank you guys so much. All right, have a great one. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michael. See ya.